Well, we've got again the record of the, the resurrection of the Lord here in, in Luke 24. And I want to start by asking you, do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because we might say we do, but actually, if we believe really that he rose from the dead, this is absolutely, absolutely programmatic for our whole way of life and being. And it's very easy to say, sure, yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but actually, do we? Uh, because it has a, a huge implication for us that really, if sin and death has now been conquered in that the Son of God rose from the dead despite having had our nature and being uh, exactly tempted like us, etc. If that is really the case, then really our salvation is assured. And yet, in the same way as I think we have some difficulty in reading the crucifixion accounts, in the same way as we have some difficulty in not allowing our mind to wander from the essence of Jesus crucified as we break bread in memory of him, so I think that maybe we skim over this whole thing of the, of the resurrection because we say, well, yeah, sure, I believe all that, da-da-da, yeah, angels appeared, yes, yes, yeah, 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 sure, Jesus rose from the dead. <clears throat> but why I think we have that problem of, of focus is not just because we say, oh, the crucifixion, it was so terrible, poor Jesus. I think there's a deeper reason why we falter in keeping our focus upon him there. And it's the same reason, I think, why the disciples just had this barrier, this psychological barrier, to understanding the most plain and simple words that Jesus was to die and resurrect. It's because it demands so much of us that, as Paul brings out in Romans 6, we devoted ourselves to his death and resurrection by baptism. And don't forget, Paul was writing that, not appealing to people to be baptized, but he was writing to the Roman Christians who had already been baptized and was trying to bring out to them the implications of the decision they had made to devote themselves to the death and resurrection of the Lord, because his new life, in that sense, becomes ours. One of the themes of all the records of the resurrection is the disciples' disbelief or slowness to believe. And even Jesus, in the end, rebukes them for being so foolish and slow of heart to believe all the things that had been written. And don't forget, who wrote the Gospels? Well, God wrote them, but through inspiring these disciples, the, these apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that these people were believers. And I think the continual allusion they make to the weakness of the disciples in believing the Lord's death and resurrection, I think that's significant, because these Gospel records are, as it were, transcripts of the Gospel message which they went around preaching. And so in their preaching, they were continually making reference to their own slowness to believe. And they're saying, look, we understand how difficult it is for you to believe because we were so slow to grasp the obvious. And so, for example, um, you know that Luke was the inspired author of both Luke and Acts. And here in Luke 24, uh, we read that the disciples were astonished at verse 22 at the news of the resurrection verse 41 they wondered they believed not and they wondered 
12, Peter departed wandering in himself. Now, there's two Greek words that are being used there for astonished and uh, marvelling or wondering. And the same two Greek words recur together in Acts 2, also written by Luke under inspiration, in Acts 2 verses 7 and 12, where the crowd to whom the disciples preached were amazed and marvelled. Straight away there was a bridge. There was a bridge built on the basis of human failure. That the disciples themselves had been amazed and marvelled in the difficulty they had in believing. And that was exactly the response of the crowds to which they they preached. And as uh, we'll see in our study on Acts 2, Peter in his preaching there is continually alluding to his own denials of Jesus, his own sinking on on the lake and shouting out, Lord save me, and being saved by the hand of the Lord, etc. All full of allusions back to his own weakness. So is it any surprise, therefore, that people in their thousands lined up for baptism that very same day. They did so because they saw the, the honesty of those that were preaching in admitting their failure and their, the difficulty that they had had in believing. Now, that is the bridge which we can build with people because uh, we lament how we can't seem to persuade people. If we are telling people, well, I've got it all worked out, and I've got the truth, and you are in darkness and ignorance now, come here, let me just enlighten you. I mean, really, nobody wants that, I'm I'm afraid to say, but nobody wants that, really, or very few do. People relate to people, and people are weak. They know they're weak. They may not admit it, but they know they are in understanding, in faith, in in behaviour. And insofar as they see that we are preaching to them, uh, as uh, Richard Baxter used to say, as a dying man to dying men, then they are immediately put at, uh, put at rest, assured, comforted, no problem. Now, I have said before, and I will say it again, that I've lived here in Eastern Europe for 20, 25 or more years, and in my time here I have seen some amazing examples of personal evangelism, of people who were converted, who brought very large numbers of people, you know, 30, 40, 50 people or more to know the Lord. And with one exception, all those people that I would say were the most outstanding personal evangelists that I have ever met, who spread the word to everybody and somehow managed to convert people, Every one of those people smoked. Now, I'm not saying, say, yeah, if you want to you convert people, you better start smoking. But do you see why they were successful? It's because, well, they weren't hiding their own uh, failure to overcome that addiction. They were upfront about it. And I suppose that immediately put their audience at some sort of uh, relax, some sort of ability to accept what this guy is saying because, well, he's human whereas I would say that the uh, the idea of of preaching from the basis of uh, I'm squeaky clean no chinks in my armour I've got the truth and I will just uh, correct you and uh, bring you to the uh, wonderful position that I have of knowing God in truth 
this is just not attractive, generally speaking, to people. So don't be afraid. Follow the example of these gospel writers of admitting their own weakness. And don't forget that Peter was uh, the leader of the early church initially, and he's full of allusion to his own weakness. I mean, he'd made the most spectacular denial of the Lord of, of anybody. Now, in the account we've got here in Luke 24 of the, the two people going to Emmaus, Alfred Norris in his book Peter Fisher of Men makes a pretty powerful case for one of them being Peter. Verse 21, uh, they said, We thought that Jesus would have been the one who would have redeemed Israel. <clears throat> the only other time that Greek word for redeemed is used is by Peter, again by Peter, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, where he says, You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And he's exhorting there, you could say, his weary sheep. People who've been converted some years ago and are now a bit weary of the way. And he says, look, you were redeemed. I know it's hard to believe. I also found it so hard to believe that Jesus was the one who really had redeemed Israel. Even when he died on the cross, I still didn't get it. But that was that great redemption, the world's redemption. Now, you see the reality of it all, even as as I did. Now, <clears throat> while we're talking about that uh, walk to Emmaus, when they, those two disciples meet Jesus, they say in verse 18, well, don't you know, you're only a stranger in Jerusalem, and don't you know all that's gone on? This word for stranger literally means one who lives alone. And it wasn't a particularly uh, smart word to use, because the only people who lived alone in first century society outside of an extended family were dropouts or weirdos or people with some, some problem. It was almost a rude thing to say that to a stranger, that are you uh, someone who lives alone? Is that who you are? They obviously didn't consider that this person who had appeared to them on the road, this fellow traveller, was... Um, particularly a high class, he looked like maybe a lower class social outcast type. And this is the Son of God who has been resurrected. Also, when Mary comes to the tomb and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus, she thinks it's the gardener. She says, uh, excuse me, look, where did, you, uh, where did you put the body? And, you know, Jesus says like Mary, you know, I, I'm Jesus. Uh, why did you think he was the gardener? How this mechanically happened, uh, we don't know, but it would seem that Jesus rose from the dead, the Son of God, risen from the dead, this amazing thing that happened, but then he dressed in the clothes of a working man, and he looked just from a distance, just like a working man. And I, I find that uh, surpassing in its beauty, because you see the, the humility of God, really, the humility of Jesus. The whole idea of Jesus in, in white glistering garments, risen from the dead, etc., Mary sort of collapsing before this man with a halo round his neck, uh, around his head. I mean, this is absolutely the very opposite. And, of course, this same Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one with whom we shall meet. There is not a radical disconnect between the person 
who loved little children, who rose from the dead and yet acted in such a humble manner, cooked breakfast for the guys on the beach up in Galilee. There's no disconnect between him then and the Jesus whom we shall meet. We can go too far in saying, well, he came as a meek and humble little lamb, and now he's roaring back as the line of the tribe of Judah. Yes, he had uh, the element of judgment in him when he was alive on earth, as we know from how he spoke to the Pharisees. But this same Jesus is the one with whom we have to do today, and with whom we will meet at the day of judgment. He's not going to turn another face and say, aha, you know, I'm actually a, a hardliner, and uh, etc. The same Lord of all grace is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I think you see that really in the way in verse 39 here, he tries to urge them to understand. He says, look, I've got flesh and, flesh and bones. He doesn't say flesh and blood, because, flesh, because blood, in that sense, cannot inherit the kingdom. But flesh and bones, he's saying, look, it's, it's really me. And I think we need to just reflect on that, that there will be, a, I think, a greater continuity between who we are now and who we shall eternally be than perhaps we realize. The idea or the tendency is to think that when Jesus comes back, we shall all be changed and we shall all be radically different. And of course our nature will be changed. But the point is, we personally will be saved. And that's very important. We're not going to just disappear into nothing. A kind of nirvana, like, you know, the Buddhists, the Buddhists believe that you, the greatest thing that can happen to you is that you stop existing. And that's actually very attractive. There's millions of people who are into all that. And it's very attractive, why? Because it actually takes the focus off us as individuals, uh, the importance of human personality. Whereas I would say the Bible pushes personality, and if you like individualism, uh, quite the other way, that I personally and you personally will be saved. Now, we don't have an immortal soul, but it would be true to say that our spirit, in the sense of our personality, is remembered by God, and is in that sense immortal. Not that we have any conscious existence after death. But in the same way as you still remember someone and their spirit, if you like, uh, after they're dead, so this is even more so the case with Jesus. First of Peter 3 verse 4, he says that a gentle and calm disposition or spirit is imperishable. If you achieve that in this life, that is how you will eternally be. A couple of verses from Proverbs come to mind. Proverbs 12:19, The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. It just exists in this life. Our way of life now is what shall eternally be? And so, again, Proverbs 12:28, In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof there is no death. It doesn't mean we will not physically die. Of course we will, if Jesus doesn't come in our lifetimes. But the point is that our way of being shall be, in that sense, eternal. In that sense, John can say, so often record Jesus as saying, that we now have eternal life, in the sense of the life we now live is the life that we shall eternally live. 
Well, the same idea, I think, in Jeremiah 18, where God likens himself to a potter and working with us the clay. Now, in this life, we can resist how he wants us to be, or we can soften ourselves and let him mould us. And we're still soft clay until the clay is fired. And the day of firing is the day of judgment. The point is that how we are now is how, in a sense, we are setting our eternity. And this is why spiritual-mindedness is of such paramount importance. And we see it in, in the only person who has, in fact, lived mortally in this world and then been resurrected and immortalized, and that is in Jesus. And I think when we read here that he was known, he was made known unto them uh, in the breaking of bread. I mean, how did that happen? I would suggest that he had the same mannerisms, the same body language as how he had in in his mortal life. Verse 35, he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. There was a certain mannerism that he, mannerisms that, that he had, that he'd had in his mortal life and now he was risen from the dead, he still had them. Now, I think that's also behind the words of the angels when Jesus ascends to heaven. They say, this same Jesus, who has gone up from you into heaven, shall so come. This same Jesus shall return. Jesus the same yesterday and forever. Now, we are to continue the the work of Jesus. And all the Gospels end one way or another, even John, with some kind of reference to the the Great Commission. And here in Luke 24, from 45 to 47, it's not actually recorded in so many words that he sent them out to preach the Gospel. But he tells them that, he explains to them that in the Old Testament it's written that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. The other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, uh, make it clear that they were actually told, and now you go and preach repentance and remission of sins through, through baptism into his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. But where exactly in the Old Testament, and the implication is that he showed them a number of places, where exactly in the Old Testament is this written, this prophecy of the Great Commission of preaching worldwide uh, repentance and forgiveness amongst all nations? Well, it appears not to be specifically anywhere, but there are many references, of course, to how all nations in the kingdom will come to worship Jesus at Jerusalem, and the beginning of Jerusalem, Isaiah 2, for example, God's word will go out from Jerusalem all over the world. There's quite a number of those, those prophecies in the Psalms and, and prophets. See, verse 44, that's what he was using. Now, I think the implication is that by spreading the gospel now, we are in that sense hastening the coming of the kingdom. And one way of living the kingdom life now is to take God's word out from Jerusalem into all the world. And that's why the Great Commission is not just to the disciples. It is for all who truly believe 
in the resurrection of, of the Lord. Now, we are continuing, as I said, the ministry of Jesus. Luke uses a word for preach, Greek word for preach, which is only used once in any of the other Gospels. He, he uses it uh, or a good twelve times throughout Acts, to uh, sorry, throughout Luke, to describe the preaching of Jesus. And in Acts, he uses it also about fifteen times to describe the preaching of the early believers. So, he invites us to see our preaching as a continuation of the preaching of Jesus. And that's why he begins Acts by saying that, well, I've written a, one volume already, that's the Gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's Acts 1 verse 1. The implication is that now I'm telling you of how he continued to do and to preach. And how does he continue to, to act and preach through the, the believers through us the body of Jesus so again you see that continuity with the Jesus and the men who walked around Galilee with him uh, through the streets and lanes of little villages and small towns telling people the good news of the kingdom we are continuing in essence that witness in the concrete jungles <clears throat> in the 21st century uh, societies in which we live it's been pointed out that the beginning of Luke's Gospel and the end are somehow related. They are like bookends, two sides of a sandwich. This idea at the end of Luke of going and preaching remission of sin, this uh, and uh, proclaiming this, uh, this word that he uses for uh, preaching, in verse 47 really means to, to proclaim the idea of proclamation of remission the bookend the other end of Luke which this connects with is in Luke 4 verse 18 where Jesus stands up in the uh, in the synagogue and he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor to preach deliverance to the captives to set at liberty those that are bruised to preach or to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, the acceptable year of the Lord is uh, a reference to the year of Jubilee. And he's quoting here from Isaiah 58, verse 6, and Isaiah 61, verse 1, which, in their context, are criticizing Judah for insincerely keeping a year of Jubilee in Hezekiah's time. There's lots of... Uh, Allusions in Isaiah 58, which is what Jesus is quoting in Luke 4, to the Day of Atonement, and the year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> so Jesus said that, well, he has come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the, day, the, the year of Jubilee proclaimed on the Day of, of Atonement, which, of course, was fulfilled, as Hebrews makes clear, <clears throat> in, the, in the crucifixion of Jesus. So then, <clears throat> when we read here in Luke 24:47 that we are to proclaim uh, remission to people, this is picking up the, the same word for preach, proclaim, used there in Luke 4:19, and it's the same word used in the Septuagint for proclaiming the jubilee. 
Deuteronomy 15 verse 2 in the RV the creditor shall release that which he has lent because the Lord's release has been proclaimed we are to proclaim that release and this is of course good news and it's not just one year it is a whole period it's all the time and so the oppressed and the broken those who were in debt those who were trapped by their life situation the year of jubilee being proclaimed on the day of atonement was good news that it's all over the the mortgage payments are scribbled the debts are no longer you're free and this is a very powerful and relevant message that we can take to people in many parts of the world who are hopelessly in debt struggling with mortgage payments struggling with all kinds of debt that they've run up um, to those suffering from absolute uh, poverty in the developing world and indeed to all those with a sense of debt and being trapped within a life situation we are to pronounce to them a, a year of jubilee a time of jubilee a frank forgiveness and of course uh, Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians 6 where he says that we work together with him to beseech people that they receive the grace of God because now is the accepted time the acceptable year in the day of salvation now is the accepted time so then the message that we have is in essence the good news of Jubilee being proclaimed and this is why Luke emphasizes throughout his gospel how it was the poor who were especially attracted to this message of freedom and it will be the poor not only the financially poor but the poor in spirit who respond to our message the broken and you know that can be rich people as well incidentally when Jesus said in Matthew 6 26 and 31 don't take anxious thought about what you shall eat don't sow nor gather in into barns worrying about what shall we eat he's quoting there from Leviticus 25 verse 20 which says that uh, at the year of Jubilee you don't need to sow your field don't worry what you shall eat you will be provided for so he's inviting us to live all the time in the spirit of the day of, of the year of jubilee and that is exactly what luke is telling us by these allusions back to the proclamation of jubilee that was made by jesus uh, and which we he's saying should continue to echo out to this world on the day of atonement on the basis of the fact that jesus has died and, resurrect, and resurrected we therefore have got to pass on these new this news of, of great joy and I think that uh, again there's a connection with the beginning of Luke when in Luke 2 verse 10 the angels summarized the Lord's work as good news of great joy for all men and so here verse 47 of Luke 24 we are to tell this message to all nations so then the theme of the resurrection accounts is of people running around with good news the the women running around telling the others yes he's risen and then uh, uh, the, the the disciples on the way to Emmaus running back and saying yes yes he's uh, he's risen 
and one by one them all coming to realise that he's risen and running around telling other people and you know like when they come back from Emmaus they're so uh, keen they, that, that they come back um, to tell the others that we've met Jesus and as soon as they get there they say oh yeah we've got news for you we've met Jesus and the point is that the great commission to go and tell all people is to be read in the context of all those people running around telling other people that Jesus has risen and not simply that Jesus has risen but the implications of it that really we are released released as the year of jubilee released people from hopeless trapped situations from a sense of debt that really we are made free and not just for a year that now we don't need to worry what we shall eat or what we shall gather into barns what we shall sow because they didn't have to worry about that in the year of jubilee so this is the good news of the resurrection of the Lord and as I began by saying if you really believe it this means that you will feel that you are in your time of jubilee and you in jubilation will share that very powerfully admitting your own weakness to others <laughs>